Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm joined by Real Clear Defense contributor John Waters. Uh, John, good to have you here. Happy New Year. Hi, John. Good to be here. Today, we're speaking with Toby Harnden, the author of a new book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Toby, welcome and uh, glad to have you here. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, Good to be here. I don't think we can get away from the events of last August, uh, the pullout from Afghanistan and the re-examination of the history, the 20 years of history in that battle. And one of the most interesting stories, and I think just because it's so distant, is how amazing the initial uh, triumph was of the small teams that inserted directly after 9-11 and their work with the Northern Alliance to really in a very short period of time topple the Taliban. And, and that's partially what this this story focuses on. In a previous episode, we talked with Greg Barker, uh, the filmmaker who made Detainee 001 and talking about John Walker Lynn, the American Taliban, who was who was uh, captured there at, at Kalala Jangi. But your story really focuses on the team members, both from the CIA's paramilitary unit, as well as the, the ODAs from the military, in, in the beginning of the, the battle for Afghanistan. Just tell us a little bit about how, how it began and how the, the kind of the, the race between CIA and, and um, defense to get boots on the ground. Yeah, sure. And absolutely. I mean, I think um, there's sort of added resonance to the, to the book, I think, because of the, of the pullout um, last August. And interestingly, a lot of the, um, a number of the team alpha members and Shannon Spann, Mike Spann's widow. So Mike Spann was the former Marine Corps um, officer, CIA paramilitary who was killed November 25th, 2001. And so he was the first American casualty in combat. Um, and Shannon has been working um, very actively on on getting Afghans out. And so I, I always knew the book was time for publication with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And then, you know, several months out, we knew that when Biden announced, uh, he actually 9-11 was initially, and it was then brought forward to August 31st, um, uh, 2021. That was the initial um, uh, pullout date. So so we knew that the, the kind of two, the, those two things um, uh, were going to come together. And, you know, I think when you, you know, you get it, you reach the end of something and certainly, or, you know, an end in a way, because I, I don't think the story of Afghanistan is over by any stretch, or even America and Afghanistan. But it's very, very useful to go back to the beginning. And um, and it was sort of striking to me in in a lot of the reporting and the coverage of last August, how people clearly had no idea that essentially, um, t- to an extent, this war was won in the, in the very early uh, months. And so, yeah, so what happened uh, on 9-11, remarkably, um, uh, the Pentagon didn't have a plan for Afghanistan. You know, you think they have a plan for everything up to and including invading Canada, but apparently not for Afghanistan in 2001. Um, much, much to the dismay and frustration of, of Donald Rumsfeld, the CIA did have a plan. Um, and the reason, or it had a concept anyway, and the reason why it had that concept was because um, small teams of CIA officers, um, some paramilitaries, but also case officers, um, uh, had been going in and out of Afghanistan for two, for two years before. And David Tyson, who's um, sort of the central figure in First Casualty, really, um, alongside Mike Spann, 
um, and some of the other team members, he was one of the people who was who was going in and out of the Panjshir Valley via um, Dushanbe in Tajikistan um, to link up uh, with with the Northern Alliance. And so there was a document called the Blue Sky Memo, which originated at the CIA, which was a plan presented to the Clinton administration which wasn't interested, and then to the Bush administration, which wasn't interested, there wasn't the political will there, um, to sort of go to go after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan uh, using the Northern Alliance. And so, um, you know, come 9-11, everything changes. And what had not been a possibility um, for the policymakers before suddenly became not just a, a possibility, but an imperative. And Kofa Black, who was a director of the Counterterrorism Center, um, who has a sort of a flair for the dramatic. I mean, he laid out the plan uh, to Bush, you know, and he said, when we're finished, there, there's going to be flies walking across their eyeballs. You know, and this, this, and, and it fitted sort of the mood of the nation and it certainly fitted the mood of the president and his sort of personality. And so he went for this plan, which was, you know, very small numbers of Americans. So the first team was Jawbreaker, which went into the Panjshir Valley in on September 26, 2001. Uh, Panjshir Valley was sort of a you know a safe zone, a sanctuary, the last last sort of holdout for the um, for the Northern Alliance. Um, but Team Alpha, which is what um, First Casualty, the, the core of um, what First Casualty is about, the eight members of Team Alpha uh, arrived uh, in the Daria Souf Valley south of Masri Sharif on o- October the seventeenth, and they were the first Americans behind American um, behind uh, uh, enemy lines, and. That, so they were four paramilitaries, uh, two case officers, a medic, and a Green Beret captain. And so an eclectic uh, bunch of people. Um, J.R. Seeger, who was the chief, uh, a Dari linguist who'd worked uh, out of Islamabad station uh, for the CIA with the Mujahideen uh, against the Russians in uh, the 1980s. Uh, David Tyson was the other case officer. He was an Uzbek linguist uh, and a linguist uh, of lots of Central Asian languages um, and a former academic uh, who was based in, in Tashkent. Uh, the four paramilitaries included uh, Mike Spann. And so th- those eight guys were, f- were flown in from K2, Kashi Khanabad, uh, air, recently established air base, um, US air base in uh, Uzbekistan, um, on two Black Hawks, sort of in the dead of night, you know, into the unknown. And their role was to be the pathfinder for the Green Berets. So um, three days later, 12 Green Berets of, of ODA 595, sort of famously known as the horse soldiers, came in. And in time, Air Force, US Air Force, air controllers, combat controllers to coordinate airstrikes um, and, and other Green Berets. And uh, they align they, they uh, line themselves up with Abdul Rashid Dostum, ethnic Uzbek warlord who was prepared to fight. He had a Tajik alongside him, uh, Atta Muhammad Noor, and uh, it was a lot of working out of the tribes, which is a sort of CIA um, role there. Uh, the Green Berets focused on on the military aspects and co- in particular coordinating airstrikes uh, with the Northern Alliance sort of um, cavalry charges, nineteenth century style cavalry charges. And uh, yes, almost miraculously, uh, within a matter of weeks, by November the 10th, Mazari Sharif had fallen. And, and there's really this, there's a tension between the agency and uh, defense in terms of getting people on the ground, in terms of, you know, defense has got a much higher 
standard in terms of uh, of the long tail in terms of the backup. They want search and rescue in place. They want QRF in place. They want you know a much more uh, elaborate support structure in place before they'll send anybody in. And I mean, these team alpha guys, I mean, they, they don't, they're not, they don't even have body armor at this point. They're like literally, I mean, very little, very, very lightweight to, to put it mildly. I mean, talk a little bit about on the, uh, you know, on the defense level or on the, on the bureaucratic level, kind of the infighting between agency and defense and what should have been kind of, we're all on the same team moment. Uh, but I think really sets the groundwork for that relationship for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly on the ground, um, the Green Berets and the CIA sort of work together seamlessly. Sure, yeah, but the higher yeah. the higher up you go, <laughs> well, and they the were all sort of, former. I mean, many of them had served, you know, yeah, in, yeah. In, you know, previously. Yeah, all eight, all eight of Team Alpha were former uh, former army, or uh, in fact, one of, and obviously one of them was still serving, Justin Sapp. The Green Beret, um, but yes, I mean the uh, the Pentagon didn't want to send uh, ODAs, the uh, Operational Attachment Alphas, the the A teams. They didn't want to send them in without combat search and rescue, you know, so that they could be rescued. The agency were just we're, we're going to go, you know, we and and you can come with it. I mean, Hank Crumpton said, who was the CIA officer who was sort of running the war day to day from CIA headquarters, he said to Tommy Franks, you know, we'd like to have you with us, but we're going, and they didn't they didn't require that um you know combat search and rescue sort of tick in the in the box i mean if they if they went down they were sort of prepared to die and 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 fend fend for themselves and yes i mean the green berets as well as cia actually uh went in with no body armor no helmets the idea being uh and they also went in with um the the team alpha went in with kalashnikovs so same weapons same ammunition which obviously has big practical benefit but also it's the it's a sort of a counter uh, insurgency, sort of working with the indigenous allies kind of thing. That um, you, you know, if if you go in sort of like an armadillo, you know, with all your sort of gear and your protection, then you're sending the message that your lives matter much more than theirs. Um, and w- whereas if you go in the way that they did, it's like, well, we're we're all in in this together. But it's incredible looking at that photo of of Team Alpha outside. The, um, the the Black Hawk at K two where they look like you know a bunch of dads going on a fishing trip that's <laughs> been sort of the running joke right but you know no military gear right. uh, blue jeans you know sort of camping equipment they got a lot of stuff from REI um, you know no sort of um, you know snazzy weapons no sleeve tattoos you know right. it was before it was it was before um, all that stuff and it was yeah it was very improvised I mean there was and duffel bags um, of cash I mean yes three million dollars worth of cash in non-sequential hundred dollar bills you know to sort of to grease the wheels and right. dostum got a million dollars you know when they when they landed uh, but i mean it, it's sort of incredible given uh what happened you know i spent a lot of time in afghanistan and iraq as well you know huge bases and chow halls and convoys and supply chains and and you know you know hundred thousand troops eventually a decade later in afghanistan this was hundreds of america a few hundred americans uh on the ground. And the plan was, you know, working with the indigenous allies as advisors, but it was their fight against the um, foreign invaders who were the Arabs of Al-Qaeda. So completely different from sort of uh, nation building and uh, establishing a centralized you know, democracy in Afghanistan and all that stuff that came later. And Toby, you've got a military 
background yourself, right? British military? Sure. I was in the Royal Navy for almost 10 years. Yeah. And you spent so much time on the ground with these people. I want to really highlight that because the title, First Casualty, recalls, help me out, recalls an old quote, the first casualty of war is... Oh, truth. Well, <laughs> truth. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of a play, it's a, it's a play on few, a few things. Um, uh, what, one of them, obviously, first casualties, Mike Spam was the first um, American killed in action. Um, in Afghanistan, first after 9-11. It's also truth is the first uh, casualty and it's sort of truth in Afghanistan. It's very, very hard to get to. It's also sort of the, sometimes people talk about the first casualty being the plan, you know, no no plan survives contact with the enemy. So it's kind of a, a play on uh, on all those things. But I want to go back to the difference between Mike Spann and Dave Tyson. Uh, it seems a lot yeah. of the contradictions in that early team are captured in the contrast between those two personalities. Can you set that up for listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't view them as contradictions. I think in a way they were comp- complementary. Um, but you had sort of eight very different sort of personalities in the, in the team. So, you know, I, I mentioned we, there were four paramilitaries. And so right at the top of the team, you have a case officer who's J.R. Seeger. And then the number two is Alex Hernandez, who's like 49 years old, former sergeant major and a paramilitary, not a spy, um, you know, does, didn't, um, you know, learn languages or, you know, spycraft. And David Tyson is the other case officer. Um, and he was, um, I mean, Alex, you know, like to call him the professor, uh, which David didn't particularly, uh, appreciate. David had spent, had two stints in, in the, in the army, um, as, uh, an artilleryman and as, um, an ROTC, um, intelligence officer, uh, but he was not an elite warrior by any stretch. I mean, he'd been studying for a PhD at Indiana University. He'd spent four years living in Central Asia. Um, at one point, didn't possess a, set, a pair of shoes. That was how close he went to sort of going completely native. And he spoke all these languages, which gave him this incredible affinity with the Afghans. Mike Spann, um, you know, all these guys were you know, fired up by 9-11, but, but probably Mike Spann the most and David Tyson the least. David Tyson the least because he was based, based in Tashkent. He was flying from, from um, uh, Tashkent to uh, Heathrow, London uh, on 9-11. And so he wasn't sort of caught up in the fervor. You know, he was already based in the region. He was, he'd already been on these missions in and out of, of Afghanistan. Whereas I think for, for Mike Spann, you know, he's from Alabama, I mean, he was sort of a um, conservative uh, guy, um, committed Christian. Um, in some ways, I think of him as sort of the personification of America after 9-11. I mean, it was visceral. He was in CIA headquarters uh, on 9-11. Uh, he was angry that uh, he was sent home along with most CIA personnel. And he was like, we're in the CIA. We, we, we do something, you know, and we're the people that do things. Um, and he fought to get on the team. Uh, even though he had um, a young baby, three months old son uh, on 9-11, he recently remarried, he had two daughters. He had every reason in the world not to go, but he not only wanted to go, he sort of, um, he fought to go. He fought to get on the team. His wife he was also this, an officer at the agency. Great. His wife, Shannon, yes, was a CIA officer too. Uh, and they'd met at the farm on their um, on their, on their their course uh, uh, in 99. Um, 
and he had this sort of burning desire to get to Al Qaeda and get to the enemy and 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 and, and stop it uh, ever happening again. And so, so yes, I mean they were sort of in a way two poles of of, of the team. Um, and uh, you know, so it's it's interestingly interesting, and you know, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why they were often put together. They, you know, that Jr. would would. Uh, have them work together because they could complement each other. And obviously, they on November 25th, 2001, they end up going into the fort at Kalajangi together. And so all roads lead to Kalajangi, which, uh, was that a British, a former British military prison? No, it wasn't. So it was a, it was a fort, a 19th century uh, fort um, built, in, uh, uh, built in the uh, 1880s. And so Dave Tyson, Mike Spann... Uh, Dostum for a period of time, find themselves at Kalai Jangi, where this battle takes place. Uh, hence the literal meaning of the title First Casualty. Uh, what happens? Yeah. So basically, there'd been a, an, a, there'd been a surrender uh, negotiated between Dostum and Mullah Fazl, who was a Taliban commander in the north, deputy defense minister, and deputy defense minister again, um, uh, a man, you know, cited by the United Nations as being responsible for sort of ethnic cleansing of Hazaras uh, in, in northern Afghanistan and a very clever and very devious sort of individual. And so uh, this surrender was negotiated because uh, Masri Sharif had fallen and there was this sense that the Taliban um, regime was going to fall, the dominoes were falling, and their last stand was going to be at Kunduz, which uh, was 100 miles um, to the east of of Masri Sharif, and it was very murky as to what had been arranged. I mean, the Americans were there, um, J.R. Seeger and the CIA was there, sort of in the wings, but it was an Afghan deal. And early in the morning on uh, uh, November the twenty fourth, two thousand one, four hundred uh, prisoners, and, and they were Al Qaeda, uh, not Taliban. They were foreign fighters. No Afghans among them. They arrive uh, on the east side of, of Masri Sharif and surrender. Uh, and this was a, this was a surprise to Dostum, uh, and it's and it's it, you know I think what had happened was that this was a Trojan horse operation um, designed by uh, Mullah Fazl, and so he he put those four hundred uh, Al Qaeda who were under his command in Masri Sharif um, in the hope that they would either be taken to the air airfield uh, or to Kalajangi, and that they could they could stage an uprising as they did. And you know we know that you know or the you know very sort of firm conclusion um, is that it was it was coordinated because there were Taliban troop movements uh, north of Kunduz, um, northwest of Masri Sharif from from Balk and north of Masri Sharif. So there were forces converging on Masri Sharif, and so you know it's, um, the conclusion is that this was an attempt uh, from the Taliban and Al Qaeda to retake Masri Sharif, which would have changed the whole course of the war. So on November 24th, um, the prisoners were not searched properly. Um, this was partly to do with Afghan custom of sort of honor that, you know, at the end of a battle, you change sides or you go home and, you're, you're, you know, you're not searched. Also, the Northern Alliance were terrified of these foreign fighters. So they get taken to uh, Kalajangi uh, and to a building called the Pink House, with, which had a fortified cellar in it, which had been used previously as an armaments uh, bunker and it was a sort of secure location 
There was a suicide grenade attack uh, that evening of the November 24th, and two of Dostum's commanders were were killed. Uh, and then the prisoners were all sort of herded into this um, into this cellar. The next morning, November 25th, uh, David Tyson and uh, Mike Spann went into the fort with Northern Alliance guards, so not alone, but they were the only Americans, uh, to to interrogate or you know do an initial sift of these prisoners to work out who you know who was there and you know you have to remember sort of the the sort of tenor of the times which was you know we needed to get to al qaeda and these were the first al qaeda uh, fighters who were being questioned by americans after 911 and so the, there was no sort of mood for waiting and certainly mike span wanted to get in there and david tyson you know wanted to get in there use his languages and work out who was there and um, and Hank, they spoke to Hank Crumpton, um, and you know it was a risk, as so much was a risk every day in Afghanistan um, during this period. But they went in, and the prisoners uh, were brought out of the cellar, you know, in uh, ones, twos, and threes uh, for the morning, and then around uh, eleven a.m., when uh, just a handful of prisoners were left in there, who uh, there was um, kind of a belief that they were sort of hardcore. A number of them Uzbek prisoners all of a sudden there's um grenade explosion gunfire and they've killed the uh, northern alliance guards inside the pink house and an uprising is afoot so and, and then it's uh is it tyson who's basically fighting for his life to get back out of uh kalala jangi and 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 reconnect with with friendly forces so mike's uh, mike span was very close to the pink house and so he he had a Kalashnikov rifle with him on his shoulder. He sort of wheeled around and he shot some of the Al Qaeda prisoners who were rushing out of the pink house. At the same time, uh, a number of the prisoners who were already out and were sort of tied up, but sort of loosely tied by their arms, sort of launched themselves at him from behind and, and jumped on top of him. He he used his pistol and killed um, two or three of them, but sort of disappeared under a, a big pile of bodies. Um, David Tyson was some distance away, and he heard he heard Mike shout, "Dave, Dave, Dave!" And uh, David, um, you know, he was already experiencing sort of profound sort of psychological shock. You know, time slowing down, loss of uh, loss of hearing, um, and uh, tunnel vision. He ran towards Mike, uh, got there. He shot dead the four Al Qaeda prisoners on top of Mike Span, um, and he shot them each twice, sort of one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. Um, he kicked Mike um, to see if there was any sort of sign of life, um, and there was no movement. There's sort of blood on the on the ground, and at that point, you know, David is sort of transported into sort of this other world of you know, kill or be killed, um, and he. He, he didn't have a rifle with him that day. He just had a, a Browning high-power pistol. So he, he grabbed Mike's um, Kalashnikov um, and uh, started shooting the people who were flinging themselves at him and, and coming towards him. So he used his pistol uh, and the AK uh, to sort of fight his way out of the southern half of the fort, which is where the pink house was, um, and get towards get to the northern end, which was uh, you know, relative uh, safety. But sort of an incredible, I mean, I don't know what his chances of survival would have been, but maybe five, 10%. Um, and he was awarded the Distinguished 
intelligence cross, the sort of CIA equivalent of the Medal of Honor for his actions that day. Um, but, you know, I've spoken to him for many, many hours, you know, over, you know, a period of sort of, you know, more than two years at this point. Um, and he still, this, he still has gaps in his memory. Um, he still can't put it all together. I also interviewed two doctors, Afghan doctors, who were there very close to Mike Spann uh, at the moment of the uprising and, and saw him sort of go down fighting. Um, but yeah, just an inc- I mean, I don't think there's, uh, I don't know whether anybody uh, in the last 20 years, any American has um, experienced and survived that kind of uh, close quarters combat and killing that David Tyson did. We we don't have a, a ton of time left, and I, I just want to acknowledge. I mean, as you said, how much time you spent uh, in Afghanistan and talking. The original reporting you did for this, I, I think, is really extraordinary, and and you it pays off in terms of really understanding or or getting a, a much better understanding of all of the in, individuals from Tyson all the way up to Dostum, uh, and I, I just talk a little bit about that process of doing those original interviews and you know what was it that really surprised you uh coming out of your your original reporting yeah i mean it was it was kind of one of those process processes where you just sort of start from first principles and so i had been i first met david tyson in 2013 and i sort of i'd been fascinated for years by the footage of him sort of running for his life inside Kalajangi. So I, I tracked him down. He was still serving the CIA, couldn't talk. Um, but he sort of contacted me um, at the very beginning of 2020 and said, like, I've just retired. I'm, you know, I'm ready to talk. Um, and I just went from from person to person. So I went into J.R. Seeger, who long retired and sort of writes thrillers these days. Um, I, I hit up Justin Sapp, who was the Green Beret on team, who's on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually... I mean, one of the biggest surprises for me was that once I reached a sort of point of critical mass where I knew that I had enough uh, to write the book, uh, but there were one member of Team Alpha, Andy, is still serving. Uh, there were others who were contractors or who just didn't want to talk to an author without uh, the okay from the agency. So I, I went to the agency, um, you know, holding my breath a little bit because, you know, I was wondering whether there might be some problem they had with me. I mean, I had no in with them or no background dealing with them really, um, whether there was some kind of comp- competing project, but they were actually uh, helpful and they did facilitate interviews with, um, uh, you know, with Andy, for instance, Scott Spellmeyer, who had recently retired, very senior, uh, Alex Hernandez, um, you know, who's sort of in a way the p- epitome of the quiet professional and, and right, you know, right. wasn't going to speak unless the agency gave it gave me me the okay and then the other thing that sort of astonished me was just i mean i felt very very strongly uh, that i had to get out there and i was not going to write this book without going out there and, and sort of walking the ground at kalajangi um and it was you know it's an incredible experience to interview uh, uh, dostum who i mean the odds of i mean we talked about david tyson's odds of survival you know in sort of i guess the space of an hour in kalajangi right, in right. 2001 but who would have predicted that that dostum uh, the archetypal warlord, you know, would have survived um, twenty years. But you know, so but I interviewed him in in Shebagan, um, towards the end of of twenty twenty, and um, he was in, in some ways he was almost like a small boy. I mean, he admitted some things I didn't think he would. He admitted, you know, that his men had 
you know, kill prisoners in containers, you know, uh, in, in November 2001. But he was also sort of, sort of, you know, this was his finest hour in 2001. He was America's sort of number one ally for a period of, of, of a month or two. And after that, he was just, you know, cut loose, PNG'd essentially. Never, you know, State Department wanted nothing to do with him. A lot of the CIA didn't want anything to do with him because of, you know, human rights abuses, allegations of, you know, which frankly are attached to almost every person who of, of any sort of stature in Afghanistan. Um, and so he hasn't visited America, hadn't visited America in, in the intervening uh, period. And um, so it was, it was really interesting to talk to him about uh, how he had found the Americans, how they had sort of bonded together. And it very much um, sort of uh, uh, jibed with, um, with what the Americans said about him. I mean, the, David Tyson and the, and the Team Alpha guys revere Dostum. So do the, so do the Green Berets. And so, it's, you know, the psychology of, um, you know, obviously what Shannon Spann and David Tyson have been through over the um, uh, past 20 years, but, but, but also the Afghans. And I mean, my sort of last thought on on what surprised me was, I was astonished at the end of 2020 that that Dostum was surrounded in Shebagan. So I couldn't drive by road um, to get into Shebagan from Mazari Sharif. You know, sort of 45 minute drive. Um, I had to wait for a helicopter. Um, I, I, you know, it took me nearly two weeks to get out of there, and so. I had this very strong sense that this this is over. You know, it's just it's just a matter of time. But if the, if the Taliban um, are controlling so much territory in the north, um, you know, where Pashtuns don't predominate, then then you know this thing's done. And so it proved to be the following August. Well, I, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to end it there for today. I, I, I can't recommend the the book enough. I think oh, oh, really fascinating characters. Uh, Dostum is, I, I, I don't remember uh, reading, reporting that, that really provided that much insight to him, especially because, as you said, he'd, he'd kind of gotten kicked to the curb after he was useful. Um, and, you know, I mean, clearly a, 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 a human being who has done some stuff absolutely uh but uh but but you know really complicated military environment and uh, dustin was it was a huge part of that relationship at the beginning you know in addition to abbas who i think is gets a lot more of the the headlines but uh but again uh the uh, the book is first casualty uh i think our listeners will be very interested in reading it please check it out toby harnan thank you so much for joining us today thank you good to be with you And thanks to all our listeners. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. I hope you will follow us throughout the year. The plan is to release uh, new episodes of Hot Wash every other week. So subscribe to make sure you don't miss anything. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters, editor David Craig, and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.